0: Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Tom Philpot, Janaki Jaganaugh, and host Anna LaPay, co-presented with Real Food Media and Mother Jones Magazine.
1: Good morning, everybody. It is time to get started. I'd like to welcome you here. I am Kira Epstein, the program coordinator for the new school at Commonweal. Today, I welcome Real Food Media's Anna LaPay as our host in the third conversation in our Roots of Resilience in an Age of Crisis series. Anna will be in conversation with Mother Joan Magazine's Tom Philpot and 11th Hour Project's Janaki Jagannath. Anna and I want to welcome you this morning and thank you for t- participating in this series. We've explored the interconnectedness of land and seeds and now water in this series. It has been very well received and it's such a relevant and important exploration that we hope to continue the series in the coming year. If you missed the first two conversations that we held in April and May, first one was stolen land, the struggle for rematriation, and the second one was seed saving, preserving culture and building resilience. You can listen or watch on our website and on all of our media outlets. It has been an absolute pleasure to co-present this series with Anna and Tiffany at Real Food Media. Also, many thanks go to our media partner for this event, Mother Mother Jones Magazine, and to all of you who are here today or listening later, thank you as well. We are recording this conversation and we'll have produced audio and video files available on our website. You can also find all of our recordings on SoundCloud, YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Ken Adams is behind the scenes, as always, helping us with production. Thank you, Ken, for your invisible but ever-present support. With that, I will turn it over and just say Tom Philpot, Janaki Jagannath, and Anna LaPay, welcome to the New School at Commonweal.
2: Thanks so much, Kira. And it's really a pleasure to be here with Tom and Janaki and with all of you. Thanks for introducing yourself in the chat. It's fun to see uh, where you're all beaming in from, and that, yes, we have strong California representation. We have representation, as I said in the chat, from other thirsty states. Uh, We have representation from folks even beyond uh, these states. Of course, all of us are part of the same global community impacted by the same crises. And so really excited to be in conversation with all of you today. As Kira mentioned, my name is Anna LaPay, and I'm an author and the founder and strategic advisor of Real Food Media. I'm also the director of the Food Sovereignty Sovereignty Fund at the Ponterea Foundation, a family foundation based here in the San Francisco Bay Area. At Real Food Media, we work with partners around the country and around the world on communication strategy and popular education, like webinars like this one, to help spread the stories of and the strategies for bringing justice and sustainability into the heart of our food system. And so it brings me great joy to be here today with Janaki and with Tom to discuss a topic that only feels like it gets more timely by the day water in california and as i as i said at the top of my comments of course not just california but uh, across Uh, the whole uh, Western part of our country and also all around the world. Um, We hope that you will leave here today with a deeper understanding of the water crisis here in California and beyond, how it's both a new story, but also an age-old one, and how communities are organizing to respond to the crisis, what policymakers are doing and what Tom and Jonicky think they might maybe should be doing that they're not. I will lead a conversation between Janaki and Tom for about the first hour or so, or until the top of the hour. And then for those of you who can stay with us, we really, really want to hear from you what questions you have, what questions you have that come up as you hear our conversation today. As Kira said, you can put those questions into the chat and I will raise them for Tom and Janaki. Kira mentioned that this is part of a three part series uh, that we produced with the new school. Uh, and we really encourage you to watch the other recordings this. Conversation today will be recorded like the other ones. And so this will be available online and free to share with friends and colleagues. As Kira said, we're really grateful to Mother Jones for being our media partner for this event and also for the Calliopeia Foundation for supporting the series. Uh, I wanted to just say a little bit about Tom and Janaki for those of you who don't know either of them yet. Uh, And I think as you hear about their background, you'll have a sense if you didn't already, if you didn't already know them about why it's so exciting to have the two of them here and in conversation about this topic. So Janaki Jagannath is the program manager of the Food and Agriculture Program at the 11th Hour Project. Previously, she worked in the San Joaquin Valley of California to advance agricultural and environmental policy towards justice for communities bearing the burden of California's food system. She's worked with California Rural Legal Assistance in Fresno, enforcing environmental justice and worker protections. And she's worked uh, with UC Davis on helping curriculum design for their sustainable agriculture and food systems degree. She's an attorney, she holds a BS in agricultural development and a JD from UC Davis. And it's really an honor to have her here with us. Tom Philpott is the food and agriculture correspondent for Mother Jones, and he is the author of the recent book, Perilous Bounty, the looming collapse of American farming and how we can prevent it. Prior to joining Mother Jones in 2012, he worked as the food editor and columnist for Grist magazine. And he brings to this food writing, many years of food writing, a background in financial journalism. Uh, He was also the co-founder in 2004 of Maverick Farms, a small organic vegetable farm and center for sustainable food education in Valley Cruces, North Carolina. And I should also say that Janaki also has worked on diversified and orchard crops across the state. And so they come both with deep experience with their hands in the ground, also deep experience really exploring these thorny questions. And so uh, I hope none of you mind we will get a bit wonky during our time together. We will get into uh, the thorny politics of these topics. Uh, I personally, I hope that's what you're here for. Uh, that's what you're going to get. As I said, really excited to have them bring their expertise and their experience You know, from community organizing in the Central Valley to that farming experience to reporting on agriculture in the state to, I think, both of them really exploring what are those solutions to get us out of this crisis and respond to it with resiliency. So, that's a bit of our preamble. And uh, without further ado, I will dive in. Again, we'll be in conversation with Janaki and Tom until about the top of the hour. You can uh, put any questions that come up into the chat at any point. Go for it. And we know this is Zoom. We know we're not together in person, uh, but we hope as much as possible to approximate what it would like to be, to, what it would feel like to be in conversation with each other. So, Janaki, Tom, feel free to jump in if I ask one of you a question. But you know, another one wants to jump in. Please don't don't feel like you have to be in a stuffy Zoom room. Uh, and uh, again, thank you all for joining us. And I'm really looking forward to learning from both of you, Tom and Jonicky. So to start, uh, I think we'll start with you, Janaki. I you know, I think, as I mentioned uh, at the top, of course, we're all aware of the crisis, this terrible drought that's like headline news. If you live in any of the states that are experiencing this drought, you're experiencing it. Uh, I saw earlier this week, the AP just reported that here in California, the State Water Resources Control Board just notified about uh, more than 6,000 farmers in the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta watershed of quote, unquote, impending water unavailability uh, and said that water unavailability may continue until the winter rains come. Uh, And so we know, of course, this drought comes on the heels of two previous record droughts. And and so while we want to really be situating this conversation in the crisis, Janaki, I thought we might want to also then situate this a bit in history, that as you said, when we were talking about this uh, conversation we would be in, that yes, there is this immediate crisis, but it's deeply connected to a history of water um, in the state. And so I wonder if you want to start there. Obviously, the water politics and history are super complex. And of course, we don't expect you, you know, to get into all of all of that history. But I think to just give us, you know, sort of the best you can about kind of that high level, like broad strokes of this history to situate this water crisis.
3: Thanks, Hannah. And it's so great to share the space with everybody. Hello to all the participants that are joining us today. And so great to share um, the space with Tom as well. And I'm hoping that this answer can be shared because, um, of course, I have to disclaim that in talking about the drought, um, it you know the term drought itself is hardly scientific and is much more political. And I will say that because, and actually, um, In doing so, try to read, maybe I can read the actual definition for what drought is off of the US Geologic Service website. Um, Let's see here. So a drought is a period of drier than normal conditions that results in water related problems. Well, highly specific. Yeah, um, Rainfall is less than normal for several weeks, months, or years. The flow of streams and rivers declines, water levels, in lakes and reservoirs fall, and the depth to water and in wells increases. And it sort of talks about the different problems, right? So um, the term drought can have different meanings to different people, and depending on how water deficiency affects you and affects your life. And so as somebody who um, comes from a history of activism and working on behalf of farmworker communities, and unincorporated communities who lack access to potable drinking water of course my interpretation of the history that's led us here to what we consider drought impacts may be completely different than that of a hydrologist or that of an economist or even that of a mainstream journalist um which i would not consider tom one of those people (laughs) and i uh of course this history of water in california is deeply tied to agriculture and those people who suffer the consequences of drought impacts, of course, are people who have fallen through the cracks of, um, of the agricultural system and who are traditionally people who live in rural communities and who are the people who, when you look from a bird's eye view over the state of California, are the people who are in the peripheries of our big states that are servant, the big state, big cities rather that are serviced by, um, large municipal water systems. And on the other hand, are the people who are dealing with um, things like their well running dry in their backyard or their community water system, which is the, maybe the well that services the 12 homes in their little community or you know the 30 trailers in their trailer uh, community running dry and dealing with um, related contaminants from local agriculture. So um, in order to kind of set this up around the, the history of water, you know, the uh, state of California has dealt with drought and drought periods for a very, very long time. And of course, Native communities have um, worked with the cycles of drought in the state um, since the dawn of the colonial project. And um, over the course of time, through the various iterations of agricultural development in the state, there have um, along with those different cropping patterns and the different forms of government investment into irrigation infrastructure, we have seen a uh, ebb and flow, you can say, of um, a proper plan, uh, and in some cases, a lack of proper planning for drought years. And um, those are sort of the the, in terms of the large Brushstrokes of how agriculture has impacted communities. Of course, we'll be getting into that throughout the course of this uh, session that we have today. But it's important to distinguish that for those of us who live in large metropolitan areas, likely don't feel the impacts of drought because our water is conveyed to us through large industrial systems that brings thousands of acre feet to um, waters, to, acre feet of water to cities. Um, And additionally, when you hear reports of like a lack of water for agriculture, we're also talking about those surface water streams that are regulated um, by those uh, federal government entities. So um, throughout the rest of our conversation today, I hope to talk more about the local effects that are really rooted in the groundwater problem that arises when drought is in full effect. And that's what impacts farm workers the most.
2: Yeah, well, it's interesting, John, to keep bringing in that definition, because it brings up a question I wanted to to bring to you, Tom. Around embedded in that definition is this word "normal." Like, what is what is normal? <laughs> what is normal anymore in this moment of climate crisis? And and so I wanted to bring you in, Tom, to to again, kind of in this like opening as we're situating this crisis to situate this within what's happening with uh, climate science and climate, you know, how the climate crisis. Uh, interrelates, of course, with what we're seeing in terms of this drought, what is normal anymore. And then also, if you want to uh, talk about how, uh, weaving into that, how, again, broad strokes, how some of the agricultural decisions and kind of power brokers have have exacerbated the crisis. So we have, in a way, what, what I'm hearing, Janaki, you're talking about, like actually these periods of drought have been an integral part of California history for millennia, and then it's being intersected with these two really powerful forces a climate crisis and then these agricultural power brokers who've made big decisions about how water is used. So again, kind of staying high level for, for a little bit more, but Tom, if you wanna bring those those two uh, two threads into the conversation.
4: Yeah, thank you so much. And thank you for having me here. It's quite an honor to be on this panel with you two, and to have this, this super informed audience out there. Um, I think I'm gonna start, in, um, in a scene in 2015, at the height of the last drought, I visited a um, a small community in Tulare County called Alpaw. And so this is 2015, the drought has been uh, in effect for about three years. And essentially what a drought is in the context of California is a very light or no snowpack at all in the Southern Nevada mountains. That is the sort of engine that drives California's water system. So we're, we're in year three of that and I'm visiting this community in Alpaw and they've got two wells in this community um, and this is how they get their water. There's no Sierra Nevada water flowing to this community to, you know, to uh, run their taps and their, their showers and things like that. It all comes from the ground. So they've got two wells there and because of the drought, um, there had been um, a massive um, move to well well pumping for agriculture in the area. Essentially, the farms in the area were denied water from um, from the rivers, and so they went completely to the well, uh, tapping groundwater. And as the um, as the groundwater um, um, dissipated, as it as it went away, um, you get lower into the water table, and there's this concentration of 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 chemicals, in this case, arsenic. So this isn't something, there is a massive problem of agrochemicals getting into groundwater, but this is a naturally occurring chemical that gets concentrated lower down in the, um, in the profile. And so both of these communities tap, so both of their wells, um, they, were, they had to go so deep that they both of them were over 10 parts per billion in, in arsenic. Um, and so this is the level that the EPA considers to be poisonous. And so this is a farm worker community um you know average income average annual income in the in, in the community is you know not much more than $20,000 a year and they're having to pay for all of their water uh, all the water they consume they have to buy bottled um a massive tax on this community um, and then their 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 water rates i i think also go up in a situation like this for for showering and the the supreme irony of it was because of drought restrictions in the area, they were these people were being told that they could not water their trees. You know, people have little gardens, people have um, fruit trees in their yards, and they were given a hundred percent restriction from watering these trees, a source of uh, of you know really high-quality food. Um, and so i'm i'm just sort of you know walking around there it's you know 100 degrees super hot just marveling at the situation and then i go with the uh, community's water manager not a mile outside of the community to this vast pistachio grove and um they're putting in a pistachio grove and it's as literally there were points in this field where as far as the eye could see uh like like you'd see the highway and the mountains and it would be this pistachio grove going in after that, uh, putting in wells for it. And these pistachios were um, a 20-year investment on getting all the groundwater they needed um, out of these out of these wells, um, and completely unregulated. So people in the community have to buy their own water. Uh, their water is literally poisoned. Um, these, you know, these entities that are putting in, it costs millions to put in um, a, a grove like this. These, these these investors are able to tap water um, with, at, completely at will. And during quote unquote good years, they get water from these projects, uh, these the, the Central Valley Project, the State Water Project that convey water from the Sierra Nevadas that are, of course, denied people in the communities. Um, and so, it, I mean, it's just the most glaring situation of, of water injustice that, that you can think of. Um, and um, in terms of, of climate, um, there I think there are two things that we have to talk about. One is that if you look at the paleo record of California, and there's a team at Berkeley led by a woman named Dylan Ingram, who is absolutely heroic scientist. And she's part of a, a group of other scientists doing that. Looking at the paleo record, what they find is that in the thousand or so years before European contact, um, you know, before u.s settlement in the mid 19th century um european context a couple hundred years before that um there were consistent periods of mega drought of years and years and years where the snowpack um you know for decades doesn't um uh really materialize they can tell it from looking at um you know sediments in um in in certain areas uh, in the region um so that normal in california is this sort of uh, water feast and famine um and we've had a very wet uh, 150 years since the u.s took over uh, as a state um and we have a twisted idea i think of of normal so that's the paleo record it is not abnormal at all for california to go into long periods of drought then you later climate change on top of it um and uh so you know California's weather, the the sort of precipitation that hits the Sierra Nevada, it originates in the South Pacific. Um, As it gets hotter and hotter in the South Pacific, you just start to get a lot of weird things happening. So what you get is um, more evaporation and and more energy and more water in the system. So you get ever bigger but fewer storms seems to be the consensus. And California has a very... Um, as everyone who lives there knows, there is a, a, a certain period of the year, it's like November to April, where, where you're capable of receiving this weather. Otherwise, it's shunted north or south, shunted up to the Pacific Northwest or shunted, or shunted down. So you, you have this, um, this tight band of, uh, of, of months where you can receive this. And so what fewer and bigger storms means is two things, and both of them are really scary. One thing is that it means it's fewer storms means that the probability of drought just goes up Uh, because you only have a if you miss a couple of these storms, that's really what is the lever that takes you from a normal year to a drought year. Uh, So that's going to happen a lot more. And then the bigger part and the the scariest chapter of my book um, is about this. Um, that you're also looking at uh, the possibility and I think I have to say probability of a mega flood in the region Um, we won't have to go into that because we're talking about water scarcity but it's a definite thing and um, if you look at if you talk to climate scientists and you read their research what you find is California is looking at um, about a 50% decline in sort of early 20, I'm sorry, uh, late 20th century or early early 21st century as a baseline. You're looking at about a 50% decline in snowpack, average snowpack in the Sierra Nevadas um, by 2050. And taking that 20 more years, you're looking at an 80% decline. And so what that means is that farmers are more in the central valley are going to be more and more reverting to pumping water from the ground, um, putting them, you know, already communities there are iced out of competition for that groundwater uh, in various ways. um, We're going to hear more about, um, but that competition is going to get fiercer and fiercer going forward. Um, And we can, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there for now.
2: Yeah, I was gonna say, Tom. You all thought you were tuning in to a webinar about how scary the drought was. Way to hear how scary <laughs> the mega flood is gonna be. <laughs> we can have a whole other conversation about that. But we'll, we'll, we'll put that. We'll put that in the parking lot. Uh, but I, I wanted to pick up uh, one of the threads of what you were just talking about, Tom, around this thread around the. Equity issue about how decisions around water have been made and who has access to it, who doesn't. And Jonaki, I know you know you've, this is where you've done so much community organizing in these places where I'm, you know, I'm imagining the scene that Tom was describing of like the vast pistachio field, pistachio grove, getting access to water while you have communities who are being told no, you cannot even water your your kitchen garden or your or your your your, your trees in your yard that you're growing for your own consumption. Not to mention the water quality issues. That Tom was talking about that we're talking about not just communities that don't have access to enough water, but it's also about water that's poisonous. That's that that's. Yes, it might come out of a tap, but it's really not water in the sense of it being life-serving. It actually uh, could cause harm. So I wonder, janaki if you wanted to jump in and kind of keep that thread um, going around what you've seen around that kind of organizing to push back around that from with your own experience, what you know is happening in those communities that have been hardest hit, and and um, and you know just yeah, keep pulling that thread.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Those communities, of course, are not sort of arising at each drought event. To the contrary, those communities are legacy communities that have been suffering these consequences for an extended period of time over the course of agricultural development in the state. And as you asked before about the kind of history and the historical context of agriculture, um, that historical context is incredibly important to lay in order to understand why we're waking up to this reality in 2021, um, where communities are still facing the same things that were written about in the Grapes of Wrath from the 1920s. Like that it over the course of agricultural history, I mean, We can start with just after the gold rush, where farmers were essentially moving from the mining of gold into becoming farmers and actually growing huge tracts of wheat that were rain-fed in in California and doing um, grazing um, and growing growing wheat for the United States market. And over the course of time, through the late 1800s, 1890 through uh, 1915-ish, California blossomed into growing this tremendous amount of fruits and vegetables for the entire United States. Um, You know, so around this time that irrigation was starting to be developed and, you know, we were growing prunes and plums and grapes and figs and apricots and the beginning of the almond industry and, you know, apples, pears, cherries, peaches, all the things that the East Coast really wanted and were not able to produce uh, at scale the way that we were in California. And of course, through this agricultural transition, waves of migrants came into California and were the people who did the stooped labor of picking beets and weeding and also, you know, doing the labor of picking things off trees and packing. And these little communities, which are our modern day environmental justice communities, were the sites of early labor settlement and in a lot of the communities that, like Tom was mentioning, for instance, um, you know, these are places that uh, I've spent a significant time of my career is kind of communities that are anchored by a packing house, essentially, you know, as a community that has, uh, it's like the way a church anchors a little town in many parts of the world is there's a packing house and there's a community that surrounds it that traditionally did the work of harvesting the local crops and packing them for export. And over the time of agricultural transition yet again into more perennial orchard crops, now we're growing pistachios and walnuts and almonds and a ton of dairy still. California's biggest uh, agricultural commodity is still dairy. Um, We now have these legacy communities who are full of the people who have put an entire lifetime of agricultural labor into building this ag economy and now are kind of left holding the bag of this like, tremendous, uh, just tremendous loss of value of their home because there there's very limited access to water. The early infrastructure for water was essentially never really subsidized by any government entity. It was a vestige of an anarchic development of California where many of the wells that served these communities were dug by hand. Um, there was no oversight around the safety or quantity of that water or long-term planning, because no surprise that agricultural labor has never been the thing that California plans for. California plans for getting water to big farms. California plans for getting water to cities and municipalities. But when it comes to supporting the ag labor force and the um, what are considered incidental users of, for, of agriculture, who are really the people who carry the burden of the state's ag economy on their back. We traditionally have not um, planned comprehensively for assuring that they have proper treatment for their water. And they're located, surrounded many times 360 degrees by massive quantities of pesticide application, synthetic fertilizer application, and application of dairy manure, raw manure um, that's that's used on fields to grow silage uh, feed crop. So we're dealing with a concentration of contamination. And then additionally, also, uh, which one would be remiss not to mention the reality that these are tremendously politically disenfranchised areas of the state.
0: You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Tom Philpot, Janaki Jagannath, and host Anna LaPay.
3: These are communities that, as mentioned, you know they're oftentimes governed by either a small water district, which oversees the actual um, purchase in some cases, or simply the piping of water to uh, residential areas. And then we also have... Um, communities of people who they themselves are politically disenfranchised, in many cases, lacking legal status or they themselves lacking the political wherewithal to participate in in the the democratic process of water governance. So this is really where community-based organizations have come in and done incredible work to actually work with residents in, in, in multiple languages to engage in participation in the administrative process, to carry the California water history out from the grapes of wrath and bring it into the modern day to ensure that people are able to run, to sit on seats in their local water districts, to go to their counties, boards of supervisors, city councils, all the way to the governor's office in many many cases where there is no intermediary government overseeing that water to go straight to uh, the governor's office. And we've seen some success around those things uh, in, in recent years to be able to advocate for a safe, uh, affordable water that is at quantity, even during times of drought. Because as I mentioned in the beginning, many of us will never feel the consequences of the drought, but there's an entire other side of California that um, suffers on a regular, on a, on a, on a perennial basis uh, around the lack of access to clean drinking water. Over a million Californians go without clean drinking water every year still.
2: Yeah, Well, this was something, Janaki, hearing you talk reminds me of uh, part of what the three of us were talking about during our prep preparation call for this, which is that I think on certain kinds of policies, certain realms of policymaking, California might have this reputation for being very progressive. Uh, and, you know, we could look at some of the public health policies that, you know, started here in California around tobacco regulation, for instance, but that They're really, from my understanding of talking to both of you, learning from both of you, that they're really, we are not a model for progressive policy around water. That uh, I think it's my understanding that we were the last state to regulate groundwater. Um, And so I wonder if both of you want to talk about both, like, what's, where you're seeing, you were mentioning, Janaki some of the some of that community organizing actually bearing fruit. Uh, but where you're seeing some of those uh, some momentum potentially around progressive policy making, or the inverse that in fact this drought and the crisis around it has ha- has emboldened those who've been pushing policies that actually aren't really aligned with some of what you're describing, Janaki This desire to have those one million Californians who are shut out of the system getting them more access, or kinds of things you're talking about, Tom, making sure that actually diversified small farmers can have access to water. So I'd like us to kind of start getting into where you're seeing some of those points of opportunity around policy, as well as maybe uh, some ways in which this crisis might be giving birth to some policies that actually might be setting us in, in a, in, a um, in the opposite direction of progress. And so either of you can jump in.
3: I'm happy to just start that off. Yeah. And, um, just to return to the distinction between surface water and groundwater, which I think is a very important distinction to understand, uh, especially when reading uh, reports around the drought, we can often get confused or just mired in the politics around, you know, what these, uh, you know, promises from the federal government or, you know, shutting farmers not having access or, you know, communities running dry. All of these different narratives are couched within a very important distinction of surface water versus groundwater. And these are the this is the paradigm overall through which California's water is regulated. And And it's not a terribly difficult distinction to understand. Surface water is essentially stuff that we can see. It's the surface water, things that are in lakes and reservoirs and streams, and it's uh, coming down from our snowpack through um, federal and state irrigation infrastructure, the big concrete canals that people might see when driving down the freeway. And our groundwater, on the other hand, is water that exists subsurface in our aquifers. And these are the... uh, of large it's like a big layer of water underneath our feet in many parts of the state that provides the drinking water source as well as the agricultural irrigation source for many farmers when the surface water allocations are not there or there's not the ability to access that surface water so um you know i just wanted to kind of make that distinction because in terms of understanding the inequities that are faced you know, the the communities that I'm discussing are people who oftentimes their drinking water source is just a glorified straw in the ground for getting that water. There's no treatment for the water. It's just straight coming from, from the earth. So when that water is contaminated or the levels go down, that's when there's a survival problem for people in, in these areas. It's not an issue of like, well, I'm not going to have as much of a yield or I have to fall of this area or you know, I'm going to suffer from having to pump more water from my agricultural well. It's an issue of life or death for many of these communities. So um, that is just a sort of major political distinction uh, to make before entering into the rest of the conversation. Yeah, thanks for that.
4: Yeah, and, um, and so in terms of, of policy, um, so in the last drought, which um, ended yesterday, essentially, like 2016 or 2017, um, in the middle of it, so as Anna said, California was the last state, even Texas. Don't get me started on Texas, but even Texas regulates groundwater.
2: Tom spent much of his um, life in Texas, so you have yes. to rights
4: there. <laughs> um, and California was the last state up until I think 2015, is that right, Tonnakee? Um, uh, around there, um, the the drought was so bad and the, the sort of siphoning off of, of groundwater of these aquifers was so extreme that California, I was actually shocked. I think most people were shocked that under um, Brown that he was able to wrangle groundwater legislation. So we're finally regulating groundwater in California, but there's a catch. It, um, it it's a it's a complicated thing. It's called the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, or often known as SIGMA. Um, but it doesn't fully kick in. We won't have to uh, go into all the details, but it doesn't fully kick in until 20, uh, 2040. So here we are in twenty twenty one, and um, the way that it worked, um, I actually thought that it might have because you know basically every stressed aquifer, which is all the aquifers we're talking about in the Central Valley had they had to every basin had to come into balance by 2040 and so i sort of kind of thought that um that process would as we move forward into more droughts that would start the process of people saying okay well we can't pump that much because you know sigma is on our back well apparently that's not happening at all um here we are in 2021 and there is um, a water pumping frenzy. Any farmer who can pump water who can afford it is pumping it completely unimpeded by Sigma. And so what that means is that for the foreseeable drought, you know for, for, for the foreseeable future for the next decade or so or, or more, as we you know have failed snowpacks, hotter temperatures, uh, evaporating water faster, we're going to see a lot of pressure on California's aquifers uh, and the Central Valley's aquifers, and so the problems that Jonathan's talking about are going to get really extreme for communities living in this area that are already really extreme. But they're going to get worse, um, and then all the sort of um, bigger problems, you know, the sort of like um, macro problems of you know when you um, take a bunch of water out of an aquifer, the land tends to settle. Um, because there's nothing there holding it up, and subsidence uh, is uh, back with a vengeance in in the San Joaquin Valley. And what that does is it um, it hurts communities, like literally their houses. Janaki has shown me houses on a tour once of the San Joaquin Valley that are people's houses that are are made wonky by subsidence, um, and it's just their problem. Um, down to infrastructure, like. Uh, canals and this sort of water conveyance infrastructure, as it gets up, um the, the 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 surface water gets lost. In um, some places, you know, something like half of the surface water spills away and doesn't go to farmers. And so, what what does that mean? Farmers revert to the pump more to the to the to the well, and so you get this feedback loop where, um, you know subsidence causes infrastructure to snarl up, which means less surface water, which means more incentive to pump water, which means more subsidence unto hell. Um, And I think that um, essentially um, I don't see how if this drought lasts for a few years, I think the legislature, there's going to be a lot of pressure on, okay, we need to actually overlay something on top of Sigma to start uh, regulating groundwater now. I just don't see another solution to that. I'd be interested to hear Janaki's uh, perspective on what um, what policies you see coming down the pike and, um, and, you know, how much would it cost to make – how much public money would it cost to make water um, – to, to bring water justice to the valley? And, you know, like when she is talking about that, let's think about the hundreds of billions of dollars in public water infrastructure investments that has sort of gifted these giant farms, their infrastructure. So it isn't, um, you know, think about that. Like the public is already putting a lot of investment into water, but how much do you think would it would cost to bring water justice to to the valley?
3: Yeah, um, I should start by saying that um, there has been a tremendous amount of movement and success towards allocating a significant amount of funds from the state budget um, into supporting some of these solutions. And I would want to highlight specifically the work of organizations like Community Water Center um, for folks that are on the line and haven't heard of that organization. These are the these are the organizers on the ground. These are the people who have been working to galvanize that local that local campaign energy to actually get response from um, the state. And so after it's been two years since Governor Newsom um, passed the Safe and Affordable Drinking Water Fund which is a fund that's meant to support the ongoing operation and maintenance of a significant number of these small community water systems and to assure that they get access to clean drinking water. Um, And in the recent month, we've also had a huge amount of um, support again from uh, Governor Newsom in supporting a uh, a fund for relief from water debt, which is a huge problem for a lot of these communities that, as I said, are living in these legacy uh, situations of both contamination as well as lack of access to water um, physically, the lack of quantity. In you know many of these residents who are in a small tax base and don't have the ability to pay for water, come home every day from work to a pink slip on their door, not being able to pay for water or the small community itself is, you know, drowning in debt from not being able to maintain their small treatment facilities. So, um, really it's been like, the projection is that it's really just a few billion dollars that's needed to update all of these systems. And hopefully in this coming, uh, passage of this budget, we should be able to see some of that actually be rectified. Um, There's kind of a tremendous amount of additional support that's still needed, however, for those communities to be able to access those funds and have the technical assistance to be able to implement a lot of uh, those programs to be able to apply and then be able to actually update their systems. But all of this is said knowing that That's just getting everybody to status quo, like just getting equality for everybody is um, like it's 2021 and we're hopefully going to see that everybody, regardless of your race, ethnicity, geographic location, what you do for work has access to a you know, 21st century water infrastructure. Um, however, you know, looking again at this historical trajectory of California, I like to think, you know, when I'm telling this story of California agriculture, 10 or 20 years down the road, what will I say about whether California planned or didn't plan for for communities in this in another transition of agriculture into perennial orchard crops? You know, I'm I'm always telling this story of how there's communities that came and did this incredible amount of agricultural labor for the diversified um, farming economy of the state and that there wasn't any planning. And the hope now is that we start now that there is a hopeful reckoning by civil society around these inequities, that there's um, significant movement by the legislature and our, this administration to start considering these historic inequities in planning processes. And we also have the urgency of climate change, bringing everybody a little bit of, uh, opening their eyes a little bit more to the realities that there are significant disparities in who experiences the life-threatening impacts of climate change, to be able to invite those stakeholders to the table in the implementation of things like the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act um, and in policy, development you know looking into the future we don't really know like what does um what does it look like to be able to change the culture in these small water districts to enable that everybody have access to to those decision making processes to determine how and how their water gets to their uh community how their water gets to their home and the quality of that water that's used to water their garden and bathe their kids and, you know, basic things of life. So these are open questions um, that I still have, but I'm very heartened by the current um, budget that we're seeing from Governor Newsom, especially in the last uh, month. So I hope to kind of I'm uh, not sure how much I can say about supporting that, but I really want to um, ensure that those resources are available to the folks who are participating in this to kind of track those bills.
2: Great, thanks, thanks both of you. And I, I think you know that the what you just shared, Janaki, about that that hopefulness you feel like there actually is. You know, there as as we know, as cheesy as it can be when you talk about like crises, crises can create opportunities. Like if if that organizing. Muscle is activated, and if communities, you know, really use this crisis moment to really push for real progressive change, you know, these are the kinds of things that we start seeing. I want to encourage all of you to keep dropping questions into the chat, the Q and A. We're coming to the top of the hour, and I'll start bringing your questions up. But I really wanted to ask, and I I want—I'd love to hear from both of you on. And uh, on kind of this other solutions part of the story, which is strategies around do you, what are those strategies that you are most um, excited about to really be looking at? What are the agricultural practices that could be incentivized, supported, uh, where there could be more training around that could create greater resilience for farmers? And also, alongside those practices questions, like are there certain crops that um, have gotten uh, sort of out of hand in terms of how much we're producing them that have real water impacts, or are there certain crops that you see as like, it's really exciting that you're seeing emergence of different crops. And I know uh, in Janaki, your case, you've worked with the community Alliance for agroecology. So if we wanted to keep adding to our webinar glossary, we could bring that term in along with subsidence and groundwater and surface water and drought. (laughs) And, And Tom, I know in your book, you know, you talked about the landscape of what types of production agriculture have been incentivized in the state and whether those choices were or were not kind of um, equitable or rational in terms of the water availability that we have in the state. So again, I know these are all huge questions, both of you. But if you, I just wanted to give you both that opportunity to raise uh, the um, the conversation about how we farm and what we farm is a key part of the story of water in the state because so much water is being used in ag. So um, uh, I want to have both of you jump in.
4: So I guess what um... And I think the, the fundamental thing that California has to face and also the United States has to face is that California agriculture has outstripped its water resources. Um, there just isn't enough water to do everything that its farmers want to do. Um, you know, just, uh, it's that simple. Uh, the, the sort of main renewable resource is this, this snowpack that, you know, it's already in the last 20 years um looking like it's in decline and it's going to decline even more. And the backstop to that is these aquifers we're talking about, and they're already pretty down low. And you know, they can, you know, you can only get so much water out of them. And so I think that some really hard decisions have to be made in California. Um obviously I've written a lot about how because of capitalism, because of profit maximization ideas, there's been this dramatic expansion of permanent crops like almonds um, that can't be followed in a, in a bad year. And so they they soak up a bunch of resources. There was just a big New York Times article yesterday about the drought, and it, it quoted a farmer, um, in, in this, I believe in the San Joaquin Valley, who was saying that, he had fallowed 1,500 acres of tomatoes and garlic um, that he wasn't going to grow in this year because he had to put all of his water resources, um, essentially uh, pumped groundwater. Uh, and pumping groundwater gets expensive too um, because you have to use electricity to do it. There's another climate aspect to that. Um, but he was diverting all of his resources to his and pistachios. Um, and so I think figuring out Um, A better balance of crops, a more flexible balance of crops that can be fallowed um, when needed would would be great. Um, And I just think that in general, you know, California ag, like U.S. ag uh, as a whole, is built on this idea of we're feeding the world. And it's actually, you know, Anna and her family have documented this a million times. It's it's completely false rhetoric. Um, If you're buying U.S pistachios or u.s almonds anywhere in the world it's a luxury product um it's a, it's a great product i'm not against them i love them i like to eat them but they're they're no one's idea of uh, of a necessity or a staple they can grow in a very tiny um you know they have a very uh, tiny geographical frame in which they can grow um and um and so you know, if that's our big export uh, or or wine... Now, look, I love wine, um, but I don't think we're feeding the world when we send it around, when we produce a bunch of wine and in, um, in, in, in commodity uh, levels and, and send it around. So I think we need to get away from that myth. We're not doing it anyway. Um, no one's going to miss our almonds or pistachios in the global market. Um, they might miss them, but no one's going to starve because of them. And no one's being brought out of, um, out of starvation um, because of them. Um, and so I think we need to start thinking of California and its amazing Mediterranean climate as a regional food production powerhouse and not, um, a national or a global one. Um, and just, you know, and I don't know how we get here policy-wise, but sort of, um, reducing Central Valley agriculture to its uh, ecological uh, water limits and making it a food production hub for the West coast. And I think that the rest of the country, and, you know, we can go down a list of, you know, you know, 97% or whatever the numbers are, there's a whole list of crops, broccoli, spinach, the kind of thing that we want to be eating more of salad greens that come in dominant levels out of california uh, we need to be growing more of those in other places and i think this isn't the old eat local movement which was about eating local because it had a a smaller carbon footprint this is uh, an eat local or regional movement based on the fact that we need to build redundancy in the food system if we put all if we get 95 percent of our broccoli from california um, we're looking at um, less and more expensive broccoli going forward. And this this is the kind of thing that actually we want to eat more of. Um, and um, and so I think figuring out a mix uh, and figuring out a rational agriculture policy for California that incentivizes that, you know, sort of growing food for the region. And then on the national level, putting some resources into building up local, local and regional food production in other places. Um, and so we're not putting all of our eggs in the California basket. And I think that there is a fantasy out there that, oh, well, you know, if California um, can't produce as much fruits and vegetables. We can just import them from other places. Well, all of the, the world's places where there's massive amounts of fruit and vegetable production are tend to be a Mediterranean-like climates, and they're all facing severe water issues there, too. So there's no magical importing our way out of it. And don't get me started. We don't have time for a rant about vertical farming, this fantasy of growing food inside with LED lights. Um, So, I mean, that's sort of my big picture view. Just ramp California down uh, in terms of its importance to the the national food system. Forget the fantasy that it's feeding the world. It never was anyway. Um, And build up uh, fruit and vegetable production in other parts of the country.
2: Great. Well, I know Tom. That wasn't the almond board already after you for the piece you wrote about almonds uh, sucking up so much water in the state. Now, now the pistachio. Uh, uh, you know, the pistachio folks can come after you too. Jonaki, do you want to jump in here, and then I'll bring in. Uh, you've a bunch of you have asked really great questions. I'll bring these questions in. But Jonaki, do you want to jump in too to talk about what are some of those? Um, agricultural practices or um, and production decisions that could uh respond to again the kind of the 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 reality of what our environment
3: is like now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. And I hate to be the sour person that's always like well you know he's like these ag production practices are ultimately determined by political decision making by like big corporate interests but that it has to be named that large corporate interests in agriculture are the dominant decision-making entities around how, like how farming is done, where it's done, you know, avoiding the avoidance of regulation, the concentration in the Valley, the labor practices, what have you. So, so these are all intimately tied to how water is used and managed on site. And, um, you know, it, I was just thinking when Tom was talking about um, how there is like what I find to be a tremendously uh, heartening renewal within civil society around recognizing that small scale agriculture and diversified farming systems within California are a key to like larger social justice outcomes. And I just wanted to mention that this has been something that has been um, over the course of ag history has been sort of like, censored out of research and has been censored out of ag science. Um, starting with the a really tremendous thesis that was written by Walter Goldschmidt in 1945, when he studied two distinct communities in the San Joaquin Valley, Arvin and Dinuba, which were like a small ag city, that ag town that was surrounded by kind of diversified farming. And then, um, another community that was surrounded by a proliferation of industrial big scale farming. And what he studied was the social outcomes, the quality of life, the um, human development index, the access to education and participation in the democratic process, um, which now when we look at a study like that, we're like, yeah, that's like looking at things holistically, that's ecology. But back then it was super radical and it kind of like got shut, shut down by, um, by government and by the University of California and didn't actually end up getting the kind of, um, I think the kind of play that it should have. But now as members of all of these entities, university, government, and and us in the community-based grassroots world kind of recognize like there is a research history and a scholarly legacy um, that we can return to to look at those connections and actually work with growers now who are stepping into activism, who are making the right decisions around um, their, their place in this longer history of California. And so some of those practices really are not, you know, probably nothing new to the folks who are listening here, but it's things like ensuring that there are spaces in your farm to collect water, to sink it, to slow the flow of water and to ensure that that water percolates back down into our aquifer, and a lot of these production practices, they're ways of holding on to soil organic matter, which is the spongy stuff that actually collects water when it falls from the sky, and the the few times that it does, um, ensuring that it goes back into the ground and gets filtered through the uh, topsoil layer, and doesn't just run off uh, with contaminants into then somebody
0: else's drinking water source. You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Tom Philpot, Janaki Jagannath, and host Anna LaPay.
3: These are the production practices that we um, should be supporting and that many organizations on the ground have been working to support and actually get them subsidized. An issue that continually comes up is that it is the San Joaquin Valley into the Imperial Valley are the last places to adopt some of these production practices. It doesn't come as a surprise. They're very conservative areas, both intellectually conservative and in terms of the politics. Let's not even get into how the counties in these areas are not interested in supporting um, many local farmers and adopting any of these practices, let alone, you know, applying for state funds to get local sources of revenue for um for the assurance that farmers have a way to you know for instance get paid to follow their land or to improve their soil organic matter on their on their farm so there are a few you know farmers in these regions that are have have come up as the beacons of being able to advance some of these production practices on the ground and then on the other hand we also have you know, local projects like the one that you mentioned, Anna, Community Alliance for Agroecology is working with, you know, the tribe, the Wook Chimney tribe in Tulare County, which is Tulare County being this region that's tremendously pesticide exposed and has dealt with some of the worst water scarcity and uh, quality problems in the state and a number of other environmental justice advocates to, you know, restore that region and work on you know, building healthy soil on a legacy farm in that area. And these are these are the projects that are kind of coming up as um, new ways to think about that history of California ag. It doesn't you know, agriculture has changed throughout the course of time, and it's not going to stop changing. It's just how it changes that we as civil society have an ability to determine in some way or another. And along with that, those changes comes a shift in how we plan for water availability and, and treatment. So although you know, looking at all of this in such a um, from such a high level can be somewhat overwhelming and somewhat wonky, it's important to remember that we all do participate in this water system in one way or another even if it's through the consciousness of these disparities and building relationships, whether it's like through supporting the organizations on the ground that are working to build these alternatives um, or whether, you know, you're working to ban fracking in California, which is, you know, additionally resulting in you know, contamination of our groundwater resources and advancing climate change. I mean, water is connected to all of us and the things that we care about in different ways. So just keeping that in mind helps us recall that there there may not be just one or two solutions. I mean the solutions are as diverse as all of us.
2: Beautiful. I feel like that's a really beautiful note to segue from uh, from our conversations three of us, to open into some of the questions we're getting from those of you tuning in. Uh, so, I uh, just wanted to to pause for a minute just to thank both of you again. I've really enjoyed learning from both of you. Thank you, all of you, for tuning in. Uh, so please, again, keep adding questions into the chat feature, the Q&A feature. There are a bunch that I'm going to uh, be sharing with Janaki and Tom. Again, thank you to the New School for hosting this. And before, uh, before I move to the questions, just a few uh, shout-outs to for those of you who want to learn more about Janaki. Uh, she's featured in an upcoming book, In the Struggle, by Dan O'Connor which is a history of scholarship that uh, has worked to shift power in California's Central Valley so we recommend checking out that book it's called In the Struggle. Kira can put it into the chat uh, and then of course you can read Tom's work at Mother Jones and I highly recommend his book Perilous Bounty uh, that touches on these themes and, and many more uh, and so those resources will also be in the chat. So uh uh, I want to turn to some of the questions, and these questions are amazing, and, and many of you who are tuning in are working you know, working on these issues. This is this is a, a focus of your work and really, uh, really knowledgeable. Uh, I wanted to raise a question we got from Lorraine, who brought in this question of the politics of the state, and she said that um, given that the Valley is politically represented by Republicans, uh, who's supporting both nationally and locally, who is supporting water justice for these historically disadvantaged communities? Uh, and how does this, you know, and I would kind of pull that up to to, to you talked just now, Janaki, about the uh, corporate power and the influence of that on these policies. And of course, there's the kind of political dynamics uh, in the state as well. And if, if either of you wanted to um, get into that. Uh, it's 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 asking you know getting at both this uh, kind of going deeper into the politics of these questions. So you know, do you see this actually falling ca- along partisan lines? The questioner was asking about you know this the, the, these these areas are highly Republican. You know, if you look at a picture, if any of you have seen you know the the state picture of California, it's really bifurcated uh, across uh, districts where you have strong Republican districts and strong Democratic held districts and a lot of the places that we've been talking about that are hardest hit are represented by, you know, by Republicans and wondered if either yeah. people to speak to that.
4: I think it's a, I think it's a real problem. Um, and I think that, you know, we've entered this sort of post truth phase of politics or, or maybe it's always been like that. I don't know, but, but basically we, we have these sort of governing fantasies that the the GOP is really good at putting out. Um, and the one in California is that all of this stuff that we're talking about is a false problem. Um, and, the, and it's caused by the government. And the reason why it's caused by the government is the government is letting all this water go out to the sea through the San Joaquin um, Bay Delta. Um, and if they would just you know, give the farmers more of the water. We wouldn't have a drought. It's government-made drought. Um, Donald Trump went to the Central Valley in 2016 during the election and doubled down on that. And his administration um, did some, you know, the federal government has some control over how much water comes out of uh, of those projects. I mean, just to, you know, it's basically this confluence of a bunch of rivers that drives much of, of the Central Valley's water supply through this, this, um, this government projects. And so the, the, the thesis is that it, the government is not giving them enough water. Um, and um, and, and it's, fan, it's a fantasy and it's wrong. And that, that region, that Bay Delta, um, it's, it's ecology is already going into collapse um, and there isn't any more water to to give these farmers. But these myths become so pervasive, these fantasies become so pervasive that people believe them. Um, And we've seen it a million times over the past five years, QAnon, all this kind of stuff. Um, This is really sort of, this fantasy is is really in that class of uh, of things. And, um, And so what that means is that as long as people are gripped onto that fantasy, as long as these sort of farming interests and, um, you know, groups like the the Farm Bureau and politicians of, from these areas, like, I don't know, McCarthy and Nunes and people like that, um, as long as they maintain this, this fiction, it's going to be really, really hard to um, to change. Um, and, I, you know, I, I don't know what to do about it, but I think it's a major impediment to to positive change. I mean, it, it seems like, the, the state government of California can overcome some of that and, and move d- despite it, um, but I'd love to get your perspective on that, Janaki.
3: Yeah, <clears throat> I wanted to just uplift a, another effort that I've been a part of for the last five years, which is um, the... Um, California Farmer Justice Collaborative, which is a group that worked to pass the Farmer Equity Act in 2017. And in discussing the stranglehold that corporate agriculture has on decision-making, you know, it can't really be disaggregated from the the racial reality of it, that agriculture has been run by white people. Decision-making around natural resources have been take carried out by farmers who don't look like me for um, the history of agriculture in California. And um, something that uh, we work to do a group of advocates who are still working together and, and kind of muddling through the process of like interface with the California department of food and agriculture um, was to create a change to the California Food and Agriculture Code to include this definition of socially disadvantaged farmer and rancher which of course is not not a very nice thing to say about anybody no we don't like it very much but it is a way that you to use federal language to identify non-white farmers under the California Food and Agriculture Code and what that did was it opened the door to um, providing additional sort of subsidy support for things like technical assistance and for these climate friendly agriculture programs, um, and during this pandemic to be able to support the survival and ongoing business operation of <clears throat> of um, hundreds of farmers of color across California, and you know, in shifting these corporate dynamics, this is a this is a huge part of it is shifting like who is represented within state government who's represented at the national level too, around um, who who are making these decisions. And as that diversification of voice is uh, afforded, it's our belief that a diversity of different farming practices that come from different countries of origin from different ancestries can really change the face of what agriculture looks like. It's something that was very much written about in the Grapes of Wrath. And it's like something that we're still contending with today, you know? Um, I talk about that book so much because it's just like so wild that it's over a hundred years since, for instance, the California Department of Food and Agriculture was created. Um, And it's just this last couple of years that we're starting to see like materials around those supports be translated into Spanish, the second biggest language in California. We're starting to see, you know, the department put in place a racial equity plan. Um, there's the first advisory committee of Black, Indigenous, and people of color farmers that was put in place at the department just this year. So, you know, in terms of changing the um, the corporate influence, it's uh, truly the our belief that we have to have representation by a diversity of different farmers and not have it just be like a charity, that it be actually you know, having true decision-making power across racial lines, across linguistic lines and and, uh, dealing with the reality that it's our people who put their, their sweat into building California. And um, it's time that they get their due as well. Thanks, Janaki. And I put a link to,
2: for people who want to learn more about that, who aren't familiar with it, put a link into the chat. Um, so thank you for that. And I, I wonder, Uh, One of the other questions that came in from Joel, uh, who was asking uh, about whether the Growing Climate Solutions Act can play a role uh, to help address some of the practices that farmers are using and potentially helping, for instance, soil, that that spongy organic matter you were describing, Janaki. So I wondered if either of you wanted to answer Joel's question specifically about the potential around the Growing Climate Solutions Act. But also, we've spent a lot of the conversation looking at what can the state do? What are some California state policies? I'm wondering if, uh, in in answering Joel's question, if there was anything else you wanted to add about are you seeing, uh, either of you, anything hopeful coming from the from uh, the USDA, from any policies you're seeing that are emergent there that actually might benefit us here uh, in California. So, um, you know, take either aspect of that, specifically the growing climate solutions or also uh, what might be some federal policy opportunities.
3: Yeah. You said a
4: piece on that yeah. bill. Oh, you go ahead, Janaki, and I'll, I'll pipe in.
3: Oh, I was, yeah, yeah, I'd love for you to pipe in. I was just... Um, I'm gonna mention that I've just been so amazed how, um, like, I think the whole notion of soil carbon sequestration and healthy soil being a first of all just like literacy around what that is, let alone the connections to environmental justice and the connections to larger ecological outcomes, were so foreign and like not in not being discussed really at all. Like a few years ago, and I remember hearing like on the democratic debate stage, um hearing like a couple of presidential candidates like talking about like soil carbon and then everybody just like on their iPhone like furiously <laughs> Googling, like what is what is soil carbon sequestration. And suddenly I'm like I wake up in 2021 and it's like just kind of all over the place. And it's very, very heartening. Um, you know, the I guess the one kind of framing point I will state before kind of like <clears throat> hearing from Tom is just that um, I I don't think there's like any way to go wrong with improving the quality of our soils. Like really it was the dust bowl that gave the United States the last, the last like political moment where the United States like humbly looked down at its feet and was like, Hey, like we need to protect this thing that's underneath our feet was the Dust Bowl. We created the Natural Resource Conservation Service. I hope, hope I'm getting that right. The soil conservation arm of the USDA. Um, we then created resource conservation districts across the United States that work to protect soils. They've kind of like declined in um, in use, but now there's like this renaissance around soil carbon and, and um, organic matter building in, in um in our agricultural landscapes and our working lands. And the one cautionary point that I guess I just always wanna raise is that any like big silver bullet agricultural solution has typically resulted in a huge fallout for communities of color in some way. If there's no participation or there's no actual um, like decision-making power built into that agricultural change, and there's no consultation for um, for the people who are at the bottom of our food system, then typically we end up with, you know, an, another big thing that we thought was going to give us exactly what we needed. And we didn't anticipate that there were, you know, several demographics that were going to sort of suffer the consequences. So I'm not really sure like what that's going to look like in terms of how we, how we go about supporting, an equitable <clears throat> soil regeneration future for the United States. But I do know that the confluence of like the, the civil rights movement that has typically carried and you know defended, created and defended every important environmental justice law in the United States, um, participating in the creation, in the crafting of, you know, the, um, this, Bill that that you all were talking about at the federal level is incredibly important in ensuring that there be set asides for farmers of color to participate. That the resources, you know, from soils to sun belong in the hands of people of color, regardless of you know our our political posture. So um, that's just the sort of framing point I'll give. Yeah, super helpful, Tom. Do you want to jump
4: in? Yeah, um, and I think that. Um, that last part of your um, of your statement there, John, I think is so crucial and why it was so exciting and maybe will be so exciting again to think about a Green New Deal, because the, the Green New Deal idea, you know, when it came out a couple of years ago, put um, sort of marginalized communities at the center. That was going to be the center of this, this decarbonization program. And it, the politics seem to have moved a little bit past that um, in terms of, of Washington. And we're talking about, you know, major um, oil and gas and agribusiness interests um, really pushing the conversation away from something like a Green New Deal um, as, um, you know, Mr. Biden became president. Um, of course, at the end of my book, at the end of my book, Bernie Sanders and um, Elizabeth Warren were uh, riding really high in the primaries, and a Green New Deal seemed possible. Um, and then everything changed um, um, a little bit more than a year ago. Um, and I think the kind of thing that we're seeing now is the Growing Climate Solutions Act, which I just um, put a link. I just did a piece on it a couple of days ago, and put a link um, into the chat. And um, and I think that you know you can read the piece for the for the de- for the sort of wonky details, but I think that it. Um, it ends up being the kind of thing that agribusiness really likes because it isn't necessarily asking anyone to do everything anything different. It is figuring out a way to bring rewards to current producers. Um, and you know, it's it's creating a carbon market. So it's a sort of quote unquote market based solution. Um, and there's no mechanisms in such a market to, address the kind of qu- the questions that Janaki's talking about or to actually make anyone do anything different. Um, and so I, I think that these kinds of corporate sponsored market-based solutions are a very, very weak substitute for something like a Green New Deal, which, which could be asking questions, the kind of questions that we're asking here. How can we bring, what, what would California need to, to sort of, develop and make agroecology at the center of uh of agriculture in central valley uh, what sort of investments would, would be needed uh what sort of mobilizations would have to happen that's what a green new deal could um it, it could answer questions like that with equity at, at the center and something like this is um i, I think it's a technocratic corporate-led road to nowhere um, is my estimation and you can read the piece um for for details. And yeah, someone puts in the chat the the red deal. That, that, that's something I'm also quite interested in as well.
2: Great, yeah, I was gonna say, Tom, yeah, tell, tell us how you really feel, Tom, because you're not being <laughs> so... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> uh, never one to mince words. Well, uh, I know that we are rounding out to the end of our time together, and I didn't have a chance to get to everybody's questions. Uh, we will, in the follow-up to, to this webinar, this will be online. And for those of you who are tuning in and anybody who registered, you'll get an email from us that links to all these resources, to the groups John was talking about, to the books we've mentioned. Uh, maybe we'll link to some of our definitions, um, but you'll get all of those resources in a follow-up email. So in our last few minutes, kind of last words here to you and uh, uh Tom and Janaki. Uh, I did just want to say one re- raise one more comment and question that came in through the chat from Paul Towers with the Community Alliance with Family Farmers that was talking bringing in that small farmer perspective into the conversation and and talking about you know really putting some numbers on it like the really uh, in the chat you know Paul mentioned these estimates of like under 100 million dollars to help retrofit some shallow wells for farmers under 100 million more for uh, uh uh you know small farmers in other parts of the state to do similar work uh that you know we've just seen this 5.1 billion dollar drought relief package from Newsom but uh according to uh to Paul you know not really providing that direct relief to small farmers so You know, again, I think one of you made the point that even with something like this drought relief package, to always be keeping in mind when we see these numbers, whether they're in the millions or the billions, that we as the public are already spending a lot of money on infrastructure and and how can it more align with our values. Uh, So, Tom, Janaki, uh, uh, and we'll start uh, with you, Tom, then come to you, Janaki, for the final, final word. But anything you want to say, and lifting up, any thoughts on that small farmer perspective or any final uh, closing words in you know a minute, and then we'll turn it over to Janaki.
4: Yeah, I think Paul's remark is quite relevant. And um, when you're talking $100 million, like right now, that are fighting over an infrastructure bill in Washington, that is almost certainly going to be well more than a trillion dollars. And that those kinds of numbers, the kinds of numbers that Jonathan was talking about earlier about bringing water justice, long overdue water justice to the Valley, um, you know, some billions of dollars, maybe supplementing what Newsom's got in mind right now. Um, these are rounding errors in that bill. And this is a region that is so crucial to um. You know, right now it's crucial to the US food system. I wish it would be less crucial, uh, but it's, it's incredibly crucial to the regional food system. And, um, you know, have, you know, that workers and people who live in those communities, live in livable areas is of paramount importance. That small farmers are able to get access to water is of paramount impo- importance. And so that's the kind of thing that I would like to see California legislators. Um, who are in Washington pushing for in that, um, mm-hmm. in that bill? And I'm not sure if they are or not, but but they certainly should be. Like Ro Khanna is on the Ag um, committee, and I, I I hope that he is um, is pushing for that.
3: Yeah, sort of really,
2: yeah, really good point, Tom. Yeah, Jonaki, final final words go to you.
3: Yeah, really uh, relevant comment related to the lack of access that small farmers deal with. And um, I guess I would say, you know, just in terms of final words, as a person who works with the 11th Hour Project, um, which is a billion dollar foundation that funds internationally, that if there's, you know, philanthropy has a tremendous amount to do with ensuring that these gaps that are created through government programs are filled. And that's a historic um, call that philanthropy has actually had. Philanthropy is often like left out of this conversation, but really over the course of agricultural change in California, there have been distinct moments when federal and state funding has not been sufficient to, for instance, pave uh, roads in farm worker communities and get access to things like street lighting and um, building well infrastructure. Well, now's another one of those moments where philanthropy does need to step up and actually help support some of these infrastructure costs in updating some of these small farm um, systems and getting, getting there to be equity so that this big movement by civil society towards supporting diversified farming systems can, can actually last through this drought period that we don't just see these small farmers blow away in the dust Um, We have to ensure that there's partnership, public-private partnership, to be able to support the demand for the great fruits and vegetables that we know that our state produces, um, and not just see us transition fully into um, a milk and almond milk future for California.
2: Absolutely. Well, thank you both so much. Thank you, Janaki. Thank you, Tom. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks all of you for joining us. We'll share a link to this recording, uh, which will be available online. You can sign up for news about events like this one at Real Food Media uh, and follow us on Twitter at Real Food Media. Again, Tom, Janaki, thank you so much. Kira, I'll turn it back to you.
1: Thank you so much, Anna and Janaki and Tom. Uh, It was great to have you with us. This conversation about water crisis in California and beyond so important. And thank you all for what you're doing as advocates for all the voices in a thirsty California. Thank you for everybody for joining us. Um, we'll have recordings again produced and they'll be available on our website. You can find them also, YouTube, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. And be sure to like and subscribe. Have to say that. Tom Philpot, Janaki Jagannath, and Anna Lepe. Thanks for being with us at the New School, and we'll see everybody next time. Thank you. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to a TNS Conversation with Tom Philpot, Janaki Jagannath, and host Anna Lepe, co-presented with Real Food Media and Mother Jones Magazine. Thank you for listening to TNS, The New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams, and our theme music is by Jeremy Cohen. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, Vimeo, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening.